the great fundamental issue now before our people can be stated. It is, are the American people fit to govern themselves, to rule themselves, to control them? I believe they are. My opponents do not. Councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. the future and the image of our hopes is ours is to determine by our actions and our choices. If we succeed, generations to come will say of us now living that we mastered our moment. Americanism, not globalism, will be our credo. The Red Pill. Listen to the right take. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 55 of The Right Take. I'm Eric Lindrum here with my co host, Jacob Grandstaff. There's another one of those wonderful custom liners we've put together, those intro sequences we put together just for you guys, for your entertainment. Combining the absolute best of synthwave, vaporwave music and aesthetics and some of the greatest lines that have defined conservatism and nationalism in American history. So we've got a lot coming up in the very near future for you guys here on The Right Take. We're going to have some more guests back on the show. We, again, are prepping for our trip to California coming up here real soon. But before we do that, we got one more episode for you guys featuring a wide variety of topics here. We're going international once again, despite ourselves. We are going to talk about the latest example of domestic violence, extremism, domestic terrorism being completely forgiven because they're on the correct side, according to our institutions. And we are going to talk about the latest edition of a conservative civil war right here in the United States. So to start off, Jacob, kick us off here. I have no I am not familiar with this topic at all. But when you sent this one to me, I I could definitely see this is going to be uh, quite an interesting topic, to say the least. What's going on? Why is why are we looking at the very real possibility of the revenge of the South Korean incels? 
So South Korea, like Japan, has suffered from one of the phenomena known as uh, deindustrialization. And this, of course, has – just like in the American Rust Belt, has created a situation where you have a lot of young men who sim- simply don't have any means to make an income. And so they end up going to college and they end up getting outcompeted by young women who tend to do better in college and get the jobs that are you know, natural white-collar jobs that don't require a lot of manual physical labor. And this results in a lot of career-oriented young women who aren't interested in starting families until it's too late to start families and a lot of young men who are simply not marriageable material. And this is a situation that you've got in South Korea. And, of course, as you have these highly educated women in their 20s and 30s, they're seeing – they're basically taking political power and substituting that for what would be, you know, to traditional starting a family, raising kids, that type of thing. So feminism is becoming it has uh, entered into vogue in South Korea and Japan the way it did in America back in the 60s and 70s. Oh, terrific. And so this phenomenon known as incels, a lot of our listeners probably probably they probably I'm sure they know what that is. It's you know, it means involuntary involuntary or involuntarily, involuntarily celibate, celibate. <laughs> which is someone who simply is in a man who is simply incapable of attracting a bride. And so in South Korea, this has created a political cauldron whereby you have a bunch of feminists who are pushing the women into the career path, and you have a bunch of men who are unmarriageable, who are underemployed. And recently they had a presidential election. This is from the American Conservative by Carmel Richardson, entitled Incels Vote 2. The anti-feminist voters of South Korea have made their voices heard as the war between the sexes ramps up. South Korea has elected an incel, or so the headlines go, in a world that has seen both Donald Trump and Eric Zemmour on a presidential ballot. The election of the 61-year-old former prosecutor general is not terribly spicy, except perhaps that he campaigned on being an anti-feminist. Even spicier, perhaps, was the more than half of South Korea that said yes to Yoon Suk-yeol's bid for the presidency, presumably a large coalition of disgruntled males. By a narrow 1% margin, Yoon defeated the Liberal Democratic Party of Korea's frontrunner Lee Jae-myung, by promising to absolve Korea's Ministry of Gender Equality and Family, among other seemingly radical proposals. So he defeated the incumbent party, the party of the outgoing president, Moon Jae-in, the guy who, of course, negotiated with Trump during the uh, North Korea negotiations. Yes, correct. And now the last time well, – this is interesting because the last time that conservatives held power in South Korea, it was a woman that they elected to the presidency, and uh, she ended up being prosecuted after she left the presidency. So the yikes. conservative party <laughs> has been out of favor with with South Korean voters for a long time. And like in America and other Western countries, if you're if the conservatives are on their heels, if they're losing ground, if they want to make up that ground, the best way to do it is to insert cultural issues. Stay away from economics. Understand that the voters want the government to work for them economically. They want social welfare spending. They want the government to pave roads, to you know pay teachers and all this other stuff. Don't worry about slashing budgets and focus on the cultural issues. If you focus on those cultural wedge issues, conservatives won elections, and this is what has happened in South Korea. So what's interesting about this, about this particular situation, is when you break down the demographics of how the vote fell, uh, uh, this lady writes from the American Conservative. She writes that while 37 percent of the population agreed with the statement people must marry when polled, only 8 percent of young women agreed and 0 percent of self-identified feminists agreed that people must marry. For voters over the age of 50 years, the difference in party preference between men and women was minuscule. For voters in their 30s and even more for those in their 20s, the divide between the two was 20 percent or higher. So this divide between male and female voters, it doesn't really exist with people 50 years and older because they've already married. They've had kids. They've got grandkids. They've lived normal, industrialized lives. Whereas the new generation that's coming up in a society that is completely wrecked by 21st century globalism, 
that has devastated the economies of modernized countries that have moved away from industrialization and moved toward high-tech sectors that reward people who have an extremely high IQ but pretty much just throw anybody else along, you know, out along the wayside. In this situation with people in their 20s and 30s are seeing a huge gap between female voters and male voters. A lot of the female voters supported the outgoing liberal party. Most of the younger male voters supported the guy who just won. So this is, you know, th- this issue of deindustrialization and young men who simply aren't able to make a living in the modern economy and young women who are focused on careers to the detriment of their own happiness. This is something that we're seeing even in South Korea and pretty much anywhere. It's funny, anywhere that the American corporations put their boots, you're seeing this phenomenon happen. It's really interesting to see just noting the the results, like you said, were super close. He got 48.56 percent while the runner up got 47.83 percent. Some are saying that that is the absolute closest election result in South Korea's history. He only narrowly won the capital city of Seoul and the suburbs surrounding it. So really, a, truly a close election. And I, I'm a little embarrassed as I like to consider myself an elections nerd. And I had absolutely zero idea that South Korea was having the presidential election this year because I've all been gearing up for the French election that's coming up uh, next month that uh, the article mentioned Eric Zamor, who's a right wing journalist. I guess he's more or less the Tucker Carlson of France and he's running for president. Marie, well, let me put it this way. He was he was asked in, in a TV interview by in a town hall by this lady who was uh, an African immigrant. Or she might have been in Africa uh, at the time she asked the question, but she asked if somebody like me wants to immigrate to France in, in search of a better life, would I be allowed to do so under your presidency? He answered with one word, non. But the issue with the South Korean guy is if he can't build off of the support to change things in society, then it, uh, w- one thing I'm concerned about is a lot of populist politicians, they use the, the rage and the angst from those who have been left behind simply to gain political power and then they get into office and don't and do anything don't do to anything. change it. Right, yeah. Because like if he just gets in office for the sake of power and he leaves office and you still got half of the population of the male population between the ages of 18 and 38 who are un- underemployed, who can't find spouses, who can't start families, then he hasn't really accomplished what he was elected to do. He hasn't solved the problems he was elected to solve. So this is the this is the problem that with a lot of opportunists, they'll see the problems out there, they'll rally support against feminists, against minorities, and they get into office and they don't do anything they to do change nothing. it. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. Again, maybe maybe South Korea's politicians aren't as you know, corrupt and just hopeless and hopelessly incompetent as American politicians are. But you never know. That's maybe that's one thing that transcends all nationalities and all races is that politicians are absolutely useless. Ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time. So next up uh, this in news that really should not shock anybody. If it's only shocking in the terms of how we heard about it, in terms of who it's coming from. But spoiler alert, Jacob, do you think that maybe January sixth is totally overblown by the mainstream media? I think the mainstream media knows that January sixth was overblown, and this is one of the things that we've asked a lot of times on the show and also off air is whether or not people who support all these draconian policies, the mask mandates, the vax mandates. Whether or not they – or even just the government cracking down on right-wing dissent, whether or not they actually are just evil people, whether or not they're actual just you know genuine NPCs, or whether or not they've actually been conned into believing that this is for their own safety. Yeah, we've talked about this before. Like, for example, when AOC was tweeting about January 6th and in interviews afterwards and articles, she talked about how she genuinely feared that like Trump supporters were going to break into her office and rape her. Like when we talked about that, she probably genuinely believes that because she's been brainwashed. And the same goes for the the black guy who – the officer who killed Ashley Babbitt. Uh, we were discussing at one Michael point – Michael Bird. Yeah, Michael, Michael Bird. Bird. We were asking, uh, at, you know, at what point did he actually – did he actually think that 
she posed a threat to him or was he just out to kill a Trump supporter? And I'm of the opinion that because of the propaganda that our news media had spewed, he gen- – because I went and read some of his Facebook posts mm-hmm. way back when he was accused of it in April of 2021. I think he genuinely believed that this was a mob of white supremacists who were coming in there and they were going to kill every single congressperson and they were going to single out black people and try to hang black people. I think he genuinely believed that. And he thought that if they if they breached that door, that he would be a dead man because of the propaganda that academia, the entertainment industry and the news industry has spewed. Uh, they've got Ashley Babbitt's blood on their hands as much as he does. Mm-hmm. And we, we see this with this New York Times with this piece that Project Veritas broke. Uh, this is from Spiked. The, the New York Times mask has slipped. A senior a senior Times journalist has been called on tape admitting his paper overreacted to the Capitol riot. It was like a scene from a political black comedy, a senior journalist for the most powerful newspaper in the world getting doorstepped like a grubby politician caught with his pants down. Matthew Rosenberg, the Pulitzer Prize winning war journalist turned national security correspondent for The New York Times, was secretly recorded running his mouth to an unidentified female companion. Videos of their conversations were, were released last week by the controversial the controversial group Project Veritas. And in one particular um, – I think he's meant to say in one particular instance. He left out the word instance. Um, that's oh another thing. These journalists, they can't they write. They can't write. They can't write oh to save their lives. Like, I mean, if you've got the JV team. That No wonder they're pushing us into war and uh, you know riling up Americans against one another. They can't even – they've never even passed basic English 101. <laughs> so – and in one particular – Rosenberg gives a jaw-dropping interpretation of the events of January 6, 2021, when some Trump supporters rioted at the U.S. Capitol building as Congress was voting to ratify the 2020 election. What makes Rosenberg's interpretation so shocking is that it is quite at odds with his own reporting in The Times. Rosenberg's Times pieces on the Capitol riot have reinforced this narrative. On the first anniversary of this year, Rosenberg and two other reporters even wrote an article attacking right-wing attempts to downplay and misrepresent the riot using a, quote, furious array of rumor, innuendo, partial facts, and outright lies. In another piece from last October, co-authored with two longtime staff reporters, Rosenberg wrote breathlessly of the heroic police officers who fought to keep the hordes from storming the Capitol and and upending the routine transfer of power. And he described how, quote, sprayed chemicals choked the air, projectiles flew overhead, and the unbridled roars formed a battle cry din. But in the recordings of a private conversation, he described that day very differently. Quote, it was like me and two other colleagues who were there who were outside the Capitol and just having fun. He said he also does not seem to think it was an insurrection. He said, quote, they, they, that is the left, were making too big of a deal. They were making this into some organized thing that it wasn't, end quote. Rosenberg doesn't just undercut the liberal left narrative on the Capitol riot. He also dishes major dirt about the behavior of certain colleagues that day. Quote, but like all these colleagues who were in the building and they're young and are like, oh, my God, it was so scary. I'm like, F off. The Times is not the kind of place I can tell somebody to man up, but I kind of want to be like, dude, come on, like. You were not in any danger, end quote. It's impossible to surmise what Rosenberg was thinking when he made these comments. Maybe he was changing his story to impress his companion, or maybe he was telling the truth in his original reporting after undergoing a thorough Timesian editorial cleanup, came out of the machine an entirely different story. Whatever the case, it's deeply disturbing to hear such a frank admission that the Capitol riot was exaggerated by his own paper. Rosenberg also reveals the internal conflict at the Times between the attitudes of the old guard, whom he describes as, quote, reasonable people. And the hypersensitive woke culture prevalent among younger staff members, or as he puts it, quote, some of the crazier leftist shit that's worked its way in there. The sad thing is, under normal circumstances in a healthy media and political climate, nothing Rosenberg said would be that controversial. What he says is interesting and reasonable. The problem is that what he's saying is considered verboten in mainstream discourse, whether it's true or not. This reflects the wider reality of the media in the U.S. and the U.K. Any mention of a fact that doesn't neatly fit within the uh, permitted narrative on race, on gender, on the Capitol riot, and you are instantly transformed into a wild-eyed right-wing nutjob. 
Because Rosenberg's story is significant, it exposes the fact that America's newspaper of record tells one thing to the public but presents a very different view in private. The implication seems to be that us rubes can't handle the truth. We must let the professionals message reality for us lest we try, God forbid, to make up our own minds. Thus far, most media are ignoring the Rosenberg story, which only right-leaning outlets are talking about. This is a dismal state of affairs. Truth is not a partisan issue. And this is what happens every time Project Veritas breaks a story. The mainstream media completely ignores it. They just memory hole it. And the only people who are covering it is right-wing media. So you have conservatives consuming one set of media narratives, and then the, the mainstream or the left is consuming – all the normies are consuming a completely separate set of media narratives. So – and as we're going to get in, into the next story, when the regime commits atrocities against the American people, when you try to explain this to average, normal, everyday Americans, they don't believe you. They just don't believe that their government, that they support with their tax dollars, would be capable of turning on its own people. And the reason is because you know, the media, they completely memory hole stuff like this, whereas if the media covered this – and it would, this should be on the front page of USA Today. I mean the USA Today is a competitor with the New York Times for the number one newspaper in America. You would think USA Today would run this on their front page to discredit the New York Times so they could convince people, hey, you need to stop reading NYT. You That's need how to competition works. Yeah, but they're not in competition. It's all one cabal. They're all in cahoots. They're all controlled by the same ideological narrative. And they'd have no interest in diminishing their power because the way they see it, they are part of an institution. And if they diminish the credibility of the New York Times, they see that as diminishing their own credibility. And so this is the issue that we're facing in America. It's, it's, it really is a propaganda war to break through to somehow get the message to the average voter that these media corporations are lying to you. And they're purposely – and not only are they lying to you, they're just omitting facts in order to lead a narrative. And nowhere is that more evident than when the media technically is directly complicit in an actual murder that took place in broad daylight on a city street in full view of the public all over politics. It seems like it's getting further and further away, of course, but we cannot – we should not ever let people forget the summer of 2020 and the race riots that burned down half the country as far as we're concerned and especially not forget the human cost of it, the billions of dollars in damage which was overwhelmingly concentrated on small businesses and the cities that were burned down, lives that were upended, and over two dozen people who were literally murdered in the streets by Black Lives Matter and Antifa terrorists. And some of the more prominent ones that stick out, of course, I think the most infamous was the one in Portland where a Trump supporter named Aaron J. Danielson was attending a, a Trump rally, you know, a pro-Trump event. And then as he was walking home at night, he was being stalked. Multiple security cameras throughout the city, you know, at the various public facilities that he was walking past all recorded it. He was being stalked through the streets by an Antifa member named Michael Reinel, who was you could see him ducking into alleyways and hiding, you know, in the entryway to a parking garage while out watching him go by and constantly following him. And then eventually, as he walked past a parking garage, Reinel just rushed right out from the entrance of the parking garage, pulled out a gun, went up to him and shot him point blank in the back of the head and killed him and then ran away. And this scumbag, Michael Reinel, then, of course, charges were filed against him, and he ran away, and a manhunt started, and he was on the run. But while he was on the run, Vice News took the time and gave him the courtesy of doing an interview with him in a secluded location while he was on the run, and he was preparing to air his side of the story. And he claimed in you know the little teaser they posted, he was like, oh, that, that evil racist was about to kill a black friend of mine, and I couldn't let that happen. Of course, there's no, there's no black guy anywhere in the video. There's no proof of any of that. But then, of course, thankfully, this scumbag was found by the police, and he holed up in a house with his children nearby, 
and engaged in a firefight with the police, at which point he was killed. So justice was served and revenge was taken there. But another one that kind of slipped under the radar took place during those same race riots in the summer of 2020 in Denver, Colorado. So, Jacob, what's the background on this murder by an Antifa member in broad daylight that apparently will now go unpunished? So to back up a little bit, this this particular murder occurred in the fall of 2020. But if we go back to the summer of 2020, Michelle Malkin and others held a rally in downtown Denver to support the police. It was a, an explicit back the blue rally. Like they weren't rallying for President Trump or anything else. Right. It was specifically to support the police. Well, a bunch of radical, a bunch of radicals, a bunch of BLM and Antifa types, they showed up and physically attacked the group and drove them from the city square. The police didn't do anything. They didn't interfere, which is interesting because this was a right wing rally to support the police. Right. You had these conservatives who were back in the blue, but the blue wasn't back in conservatives. And this is kind of what led to the diminishing support of police among conservative circles. So during this time that we found out later because of a whistleblower in the Denver Police Department, the Denver Police Union president, Nick Rogers, he later blew the whistle on how the local police chief who had marched arm in arm with BLM protesters earlier in the summer, he told he gave the order of his officers to retreat as soon as the leftist mob attacked. And this was a tactic that we saw – we've seen happen over and over again. You have a conservative rally in Portland and Denver in a liberal city. The police are there, and then whenever the leftists show up, they have an agreement with the leftists that once they attack, they're going to back up. And this is what happened in Birmingham back in the 60s with the KKK. Whenever you had the Freedom Riders coming down, the Birmingham police, they were in tight with the KKK, and they had an agreement. That, okay, whenever you all show up, we'll give you 15 minutes, and after you've done your work, then we'll step in, and you all better be out of the way or we're going to arrest you. And this is kind of what you're seeing with Antifa in a lot of these cities. They mm-hmm. have The police chief is in with these radicals. Well, a little bit later, this was in October of um, – so on October 10th, there was another rally. This was head by, this was headed up by a Benghazi Marine hero, John Tig Tegan, at the Civic Center Plaza in Denver. This time, the police actually did their jobs because the media had gotten out about what a horrible job they had done. Nick Rogers had blown the whistle on the police chief, so they were there. They were going to make sure they were going to do their jobs. Everything went off without a hitch. As the protesters were walking back to their cars, though, uh, News 9, which is an NBC affiliate in Denver, uh, the, the cameraman was there with – and this private security agent, 32-year-old Matthew Doloff – he and the news guy, they conferred with one another. Oh, this was all on camera. They went and talked to one another. Doloff went and confronted Lee Keltner, who was a, a 49-year-old business owner, small business owner. He was a, he was a, a vet. And he, but Lee Keltner was just minding his own business, walking to his car. Doloff goes up and confronts him. He turns around. An argument ensues. And all Keltner does is reach out and slap at his hand. I remember watching the video. Yeah, it was like the, the guy, you know, Doloff goes up clearly trying to start something. And Keltner's a bigger guy. He was a bigger, obviously, he's a veteran. He's much more well-built than Doloff was. So Keltner reaches out. And it's not a vicious slap. It certainly wasn't like an attempted punch to turn into a slap. It was a very gentle slap that happened to hit Doloff in the face. You, know, you could tell it was very much a disarming move. Like, you know, hey, back off. I don't want this to get worse. Leave me alone. It was a very light slap. But you could tell that in that moment, Doloff's very fragile ego was shattered, that he literally got bitch slapped in front of everybody on camera in front of you know the public. So immediately, Doloff steps back, whips out a gun from underneath his shirt, points it at Keltner, and just shoots him point blank in the chest and kills him. And Keltner, you could tell he was dead before he hit the ground. And if you look at the video, it almost looks like Doloff is reaching for something on Keltner's chest whenever they're up close to one another. I don't know if Keltner had a gun in his chest. That's what that's what some have speculated that um, that Doloff was reaching for that gun. But all Keltner did was simply slap him away. I think he was trying to aim for his hand. He might have accidentally touched his face, and because of that, then he ends up getting killed. Well. 
this ends up, of course, Dolph gets arrested. He's charged with, uh, with second degree murder. And recently that charge, all charges were completely dropped. He was, so he's going to get off scot free. He's going to not going to face any jail time. His, his trial date was set for April 12th. And recently the district attorney decided to completely drop all charges. And the reasoning behind that, the reason why they decided to drop all charges was because they claim that it, uh, they could not prove that he murdered Lee Keltner because Lee Keltner had slapped him. That's, they described that's it as literally quote, what their reasoning their is. Their justification I'm looking from the Denver Post. They called it, quote, very threatening, end quote, very threatening actions from the victim in this case. This, this, I'm trying not to go on a tirade here. This is the, this is the garbage that just pisses me off to no end. This should get your blood boiling. This guy, it's on video from start to finish. This was a murder in broad daylight, up close, video footage of it and everything, unprovoked murder. And this guy's going to get away with it because he's politically aligned with the, the institutions. This is just, this, this is disgusting. This is the kind of stuff that makes you realize we don't have a country anymore. In a decent society, the moment this announcement happened, he would have been charged. He would have been charged. He would be going to jail right now as he should be for the rest of his life. But see, this is a situation – this is what you would call anarcho-tyranny whenever right-wingers get yeah. out or even conservatives, moderates even. People are just normal veterans. Like a lot of these are retired people in their 60s and 70s in wheelchairs with walkers who are simply want to come out and have a patriotic rally with American flags. They're back in the blue. They're violently attacked by these by these city by these urban thugs who have been brainwashed basically brainwashed marxist and the police don't do anything because the police believe that the old lady that the old grandma out with her walker that she's a danger and a menace to society so she needs to be taught a lesson like all these all these boomers who are out here just exercising their first amendment rights that they don't deserve any protection they don't have any rights because they're on the wrong side of history and this is i mean this is a dangerous situation and this is why people need to understand that if you don't get involved in local politics and you don't focus on who your who your police chief is, who your sheriff is, who your district attorney is, that's that's extremely important. Like this leftist district attorney, she is notorious for letting off for letting criminals off the hook. And so this is what we're seeing. Like like with the Loudoun County situation, you had a Soros back district attorney. She prosecuted the dad whose daughter was raped simply because he was letting his voice be heard in a in a uh, in, in a what do you call it? Um, mine's blanking. Uh, school board it's because he was letting his voice be heard in a school board meeting. So you have these pros- these leftist prosecutors who let actual criminals off the hook, but they go hard against conservatives. So they'll literally let a rapist, a child rapist, a two time child rapist like in Loudoun County get off scot free. But when the girl's father dares to protest it, they will the police will escort him and his victim daughter and his wife off campus. And then when he protests the school board meeting, the police officers will beat him and arrest him because clearly he's the one who did something wrong. Now, in a normal country, something like this, the the fact that Doloff got off the hook, this would be the on the front page of Fox News. This would be on the front page of National Review. This would be on the front page of every single conservative organization every single conservative outlet out there they would be running this as their front story but they nobody's running the only thing i could find actually talking about this case was a small local newspaper in boulder colorado known as the daily camera they probably don't even have a print edition of their paper right and what's interesting is they don't even single out the lee keltner case they they combine his case with several others and it's an editorial it says when is a homicide justified and it writes, uh, in Colorado and across the nation, that question has haunted tragedy after tragedy. We saw it near Civic Center Park with the death of Lee Keltner, who was shot in the head as he pulled mace on two journalists and a hired security guard. So they make it out even here where they're actually attacking the system for letting off Keltner's killer. They're still putting the blame on Keltner. They can't be, yeah, they can't be bothered to 
talk about the obvious politics of the situation and how that played a huge role in him getting off scot-free. But Keltner didn't even reach for Mace until he saw Doloff reaching for his gun. He pulled out his Mace to save his own life in, a, in an effort of self-defense. It wasn't like – but see, the way they editorialize it, they make it look like Keltner walked up to two journalists, pulled out bear spray and just started spraying him in the face. And that's why the guy pulled out his gun and killed him. But they go on. We saw it with the death of Alexis Mendez Perez, a, ten, a teen who was shot in the back while running from police through a Montebello backyard. We saw it with the death of Whaley Alvarado Gonzalez, a teen stabbed across the street from a 7-Eleven parking lot in Harvey Park. And they go on talking. They name several others who were shot and killed. And the person who killed them was let off scot-free because of the laws on Colorado's books that make it extremely easy to get away with killing somebody if you think that you're you are threatened in any way. And of course, they're criticizing the law, which deserves criticism because there technically is a loophole that they could allow Doloff to get off if they wanted to. But my point is, like this editorial, this is the only thing that you can find actually attacking the system for letting Doloff off the hook. And, even and that, they can't even bother to focus on Lee Keltner, which is probably a much more egregious case than any of these other cases that they bring up. Those other cases sound more like generic, you know, police brutality cases that, you know, BLM would talk about on a regular basis, you know, but they they, lap, they lump it in with this, which is clearly a very different situation. Something else I got to point out, something else I'm piecing together is that these Antifa types, again, looking even at just the still image of the two side by side, you know, this, this scrawny guy Doloff up against Keltner, you know, the veteran who is obviously in much better shape overwhelmingly andy knows reporting will we'll confirm this among other things antifa members are overwhelmingly you know rich spoiled white kids who obviously came from very wealthy homes they probably were raised by professors as their parents they just are not used to any adversity whatsoever they certainly have not tried to make themselves better physically they are used to being carried through life with a silver spoon in their mouth and this is just one further example you take one look at the contrast between these two of course Doloff had to use a gun to have a fighting chance against this guy because you know this guy this veteran this patriotic american would have absolutely pulverized him in a one-on-one fight you know with no weapons involved so he had to use a gun because he's like oh i picked a fight with a guy who's a little bit too big for me i'm gonna shoot him and kill him like that that's real privilege you want to talk about real privilege in america and not white privilege that's an example of privilege in america again that is backed by the institutions and yet these same people Doloff and all these other scumbags in antifa and these domestic terrorist groups still think that they are the revolution. They still think they're the underdogs fighting the system. You j- Boy, you just got bailed out by the system. If it weren't for the system, you would be rotting away in prison right now and up against a lot of other bigger guys than you who would definitely be able to take you one-on-one because you won't have your precious toy on your at your waistband. Yeah, what's interesting is, see, Doloff, he was at one time an Occupy Wall Street protester. Oh, of course. And this is what they've you've seen the system do. It's kind of taken that group, that Occupy Wall Street bunch that was out there and, uh, you know, taking dumps in parks and just... And raping people in raping their Raping people and doing yeah. drugs in parks and basically trying to recreate the 1960s, more of an like an anti-corporate 1960s. You've seen the system take a lot of these people... And reorient their rage away from Wall Street mm-hmm. against conservatives, against especially, the right. Especially because now Wall Street is on their side. You know, go yeah, figure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they're not. They don't want them. They don't want that rage. They understand that angst can't be cured. So they just got to reorient it away from their corporations and their banks toward the people who are real, a real threat, like a genuine populist right. So the interesting thing about Doloff is he was working as a contractor that day for Nine News, which is the Denver NBC affiliate. And this particular news, this local news channel had been extremely 
um, biased, shall we say, in favor of BLM all through the summer. They the had, media they had, being biased for the left? Say it ain't so. so well, it's it's different because obviously it's, the national media is biased yes. for the left in BLM. If it's a little bit, it's not quite as common for local in news stations to yeah. be this Lo- biased right. in favor of BLM. Right. Local news stations are far more likely to actually do the job and just report the news. Like if you want basic news, like you know what's going on in your area without you know opinion and spin, you watch local news. That's generally the rule of thumb. So Doloff had been hired through a contract with the Pinkerton Agency, which, of course, is the agency that was around back in the 1800s. I believe they were responsible for killing Jesse James' sister, brother, and mother. They were notorious for going after um, after people who went on strike. They were notorious union busters. They at one point had more people on their payroll than the United States Army. So they're a notorious private security firm. So he was hired um, through a contract with Pinkerton, which had subcontracted the work out to Isborne Security Services, who hired Doloff to work for this news agency. Now, at the time when this happened, Pinkerton refused to comment. They, when they were contacted by news outlets, they refused to comment, and they refused to say who this Isborne Security Services was that uh, subcontracted and hired him to work for the news agency. In the days and weeks after the shooting, the city of Denver confirmed Doloff did not have a license to operate as a security guard or to carry a gun in, Den- in Denver. Now, is he going to serve any jail time for carrying a gun in Denver without a license? I guarantee you that if any of those conservative activists had been armed, they would have been charged with a gun charge, and they would have been thrown in jail, and the key would have been thrown away. Last June, and this would be um, this would be in June of 2021, the city of Denver did revoke Pinkerton's license to operate as a private security company in the wake of the shooting. Both Pinkerton and Isborne Security had been cited for violating the city's municipal code, and Isborne reached a settlement agreement with the city to surrender its security guard employer license and not seek another one for another five years down the road. So they gave a little slap on the wrist to Pinkerton and this subcontractor, but nothing's going to happen to Doloff. He's not going to get a gun charge. He's not going to – and the only – what's interesting is you know how whenever conservatives end up shooting someone in self-defense, they throw the book at them like they put like five or six or eight charges yeah. on them, kind of like they did with the, the the case – the recent case in Georgia. Like they threw everything they could at that father and son, just piled on the charges. Yep. So if they're – Federal hate crime charges, everything. Yeah, so if they're acquitted of one, then they've got seven others they can fall back on. Well, Doloff was charged with one murder charge. So all they had to do was dismiss the one murder charge, and now he's got for it. No gun charges, nothing. So – yeah, so that that basically sends out the because I think what it is is they the system like the the system that runs this country like the media the whole media industrial complex they were so outraged by the Kyle Rittenhouse case like yeah. you know, those in the Justice Department those the DAs the leftist DAs they were so outraged by that debacle the whole trial was that if Rittenhouse is acquitted this is going to send a message to the right mm-hmm. that it's okay to kill protesters that if you're not going to be prosecuted if you go out in the streets and you're attacked and you shoot in self defense well. This is trying to send a message to the right that if you demonstrate in favor of any kind of right-wing cause, you will be hunted down and you will be killed, and your killer will not face justice. So it, it's, it is kind of the situation where you don't have a real country when you've got that situation where the rules don't matter. You see the other side as an enemy, as an enemy combatant. You don't see them as just They're Democrats not fellow countrymen, yeah. yeah. And, and even that best-case scenario, you better hope that if you do – you know kill a leftist terrorist you, you're in a jurisdiction with like a judge or a da that under that actually will uphold the law because again a huge part of the rittenhouse case was the judge who kept slapping down the prosecution when they tried to you know twist and turn and all the things like say oh you've kept quiet up to this point in the trial why is that and the judge had to scream at them like are you kidding me that's basic legal proceedings what are you talking about whereas in, in this case obviously the da was not on their side so it, it also comes down to locality as well you know so if you're in a if you're in cook county uh, you're unless you're just jesse smollett you're 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 not going to get off scot-free. 
So with all this going on, with with all these international politics and things going on on the left, the left scoring more victories in the streets every single day. What is the right doing? What is the establishment right? What is the conservative movement in America doing today? Well, (laughs) in this latest edition of Conservative Civil War, we just had to talk about this. CPAC and transgenderism. What could possibly go wrong? So this all started on March 6th when the New York Post posted an editorial or an article, I should say, kind of slightly hinting at support for by far the most controversial transgender person in America today. And that is Will Thomas, who now prefers to call himself Leah Thomas, the Penn State student who is who was a man, but now he identifies as a woman and switched from the men's swimming team to the women's swimming team. When he was on the men's team, he was ranked like literally 462 or something out of all male swimmers in colleges across the country. Now that he is suddenly a woman, he's the number one college female swimmer, quote unquote, female swimmer in the country. He's you know, crushing all these women, literally and figuratively crushing all their records and is, of course, being celebrated by trans rights groups. But everyone else is saying, Yo, WTF, what's going on here? This is not fair to all the women who have trained and competed hard, living their lives as women, now going up against this guy who's got all the hormones, all the the testosterone, the strength of being a man, but he gets a free pass from Penn State. And oh, by the way, he gets to use the locker rooms with them too. And well over a dozen of his teammates have complained anonymously to the coach, to the school, saying we do not want to share locker rooms with a man. And the, the school tells him to go pound sand, deal with it. That's progress. So... This tweet from the New York Post about Will Thomas was retweeted, was quote tweeted by none other than Matt Schlapp. Now, who is Matt Schlapp? You may know who that is. He is the chair of the American Conservative Union, which is the organization behind CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference, which is the mothership of conservative gatherings. It's the biggest gathering of political conservatism and conservative figures you will find anywhere in the country every year at any given time. It is the Comic-Con of conservatism. It is, it's the Coachella of conservatism. It is where you will find everybody. You go to a CPAC. I had the privilege of going to CPAC in 2020 and right before everything went, all went to hell with COVID. And you'll see people walking around. You'll see conservative celebrities and you'll see politicians, members of Congress. And of course, you will most likely get to hear President Trump speak. He speaks at every one of these conferences. So CPAC's a big deal and Matt Schlapp is a very big deal in the conservative movement. So what did Matt Schlapp have to say about this transgenderism being pushed uh, unfairly on female athletes? Quote, no matter what one thinks of Leah's ability to swim with women, her story deserves our compassion. It will be interesting to hear Leah's POV, that's point of view, in 30 years, end quote. So that that might as well have come from, you know, uh, that might as well have come from Don Lemon at CNN, right? That might as well have come from Kamala Harris. That might as well, that sounds about as leftist as it can get, basically saying, oh yeah, referring to him by his new name of Leah, referring to him as a her with the female pronouns. And obviously, plenty of people on conservative Twitter had a lot to say about this. Multiple people, multiple verified conservative pundits on Twitter were responding to him, retweeting him. He got completely ratioed over this one. He got absolutely demolished for this objectively bad take. And leading the charge is someone we have talked about on the show before. Her name is Jenna Ellis. We previously talked about uh, in our episode on Cuba, America First or Cuba Libre, episode 29. We talked about how she went toe-to-toe with Tommy Lahren, you know, that, that beloved fox nation host the host of that hit show on fox nation you know the that subscriber only service that uh fox news has that everybody loves that's super popular right i would i would love to 
get a profile of the average Fox Nation subscriber <laughs> just to kind of figure out what kind of person spends the money to watch that. Well, allegedly, uh, from what I have heard, a good majority of the viewers and subscribers to Fox Nation are Fox employees who got their subscriptions for free because allegedly, shortly after launch, Fox Nation was doing so poorly in subscription numbers, they had to give free subscriptions to all of their employees to artificially boost the numbers. Well, that's kind of how CPAC is. you got a lot of the attendees at CPAC work for think tanks in Washington, D.C., and their trip is paid for by their bosses. Okay, I, I did not know that because I know they said that the last CPAC conference had like 18,000 people in attendance. And I, I am still willing to believe those numbers because you got, of course, lots of people who mostly because Trump speaks to them. People want to go for Trump. And it, it's been held in Florida ever since 2021 because, of course, it was previously held in uh, National Harbor in Maryland. But obviously, Maryland, you know, adjacent to D.C., still had really strict measures. So they just moved to Florida. Plus, of course, Florida is pretty much Trump country now at this point. Right. You know, that's where Trump literally lives. It's now a nice red state with a Republican governor and two Republican senators. It's. It's the new Republican country, basically. It's the new jewel of America. So it's been held in Orlando. That's where it was this year. So anyway, back to the subject. So Jenna Ellis, who was one of President Trump's attorneys, she we mentioned before, she served uh, as part of the the all-star team that was really fighting against voter fraud in the 2020 election, along with, of course, Rudy Giuliani, uh, Joe DeGeneva, Victoria Tensing, and a few others. She was great, and we talked about how she called out Tommy Lahren for unironically supporting Bruce Jenner, a.k.a. Caitlyn Jenner, in the California recall election. Oh, remember that? That feels like a lifetime ago, doesn't it? And, you know, Tommy Lahren was all, oh, you conservatives are just haters. We need more people like Caitlyn in our movement. And Jenna was basically just like, you know, sit down, girl. Let me teach you a thing or two about yep. what conservatism is. <laughs> Let's sacrifice our values for 0.2% of the population. <laughs> 0.02%, I believe. It's, it's just a ridiculously small number. But anyway, so Jenna Ellis had... <laughs> she had a lot to say to match slap. So she retweeted the original quote tweet and said, quote, no, none of this is remotely conservative, principled or truthful, Matt. What are you doing? Question mark, exclamation mark. It's sad to see CPAC leadership and the GOP establishment cave to the LGBT agenda. I will not support this. Matt subsequently responded with Jenna. All I am saying is in the end, trans people deserve our love and compassion. We should we should defend girls sports against competing with men aggressively. But in the end, remember that all people deserve respect. Kind of simple. If showing decency makes you boycott CPAC, I'm good with it. So, so hang on. So, whoa, 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 hold on. Hold on, hold on. So he said we should defend women's sports because you sure didn't suggest that in your tweet, dude. Like that did not come across as like, you know, he said her story deserves our love and our compassion. We should hear her perspective in 30 years. So you really did not hit that point hard enough in your original tweet. To which Jenna responded, quote, that's not all you said, man. You can't walk back calling a man her under the guise of love and compassion. Love and compassion requires speaking truth. True. Conservatives, this is an open call from Matt to abandon CPAC because he is unwilling to stand for truth. Do it. Because very yeah. much, yeah, that tweet, he was directing it at her saying, hey, mm -hmm. Jenna Ellis, if you want to CPAC, boycott CPAC, go ahead. She's saying, all right, anybody else who agrees with me, let's all boycott CPAC. So that kind of backfired a little bit. She then further responded saying, quote, Matt, I have to wonder what kind of decency you think is being shown to the young women who are forced to share a locker room with Leah Thomas. Ooh, that is that's a very, very good point. <laughs> Matt Schlapp responds further. Jenna, this is a false controversy. You were upset with CPAC, but we because we didn't invite you to speak this wow. year. We score the bills aimed at protecting girls' sports and our kids from gender confusion indoctrination. Again, your original tweet did not suggest that. I don't wish to normalize it, but simply just deal with it with compassion. 
Golly. She responded again. I'm going to go through all these because every single one of these tweets is dynamite. Quote, oh boy, you're going from bad to flailing. I came to CPAC this year with Freedom Center and covered DJT's speech with Newsmax. It was your loss I didn't speak about election integrity. And she posted the emoji of the girl shrugging. This isn't about anything except your push of transgenderism as an alleged conservative. Further, there are literally thousands of tweets ratioing you hard, yet you're only choosing to pick on me as if I'm literally the only one conservative upset you're pushing lies. Why, Matt? (laughs) A little bit further. Final uh, the final tweet, the final tweet from Jenna Ellis closing out this thread, quote, no one, Matt, pushed a total lie and advances LGBT agenda as a conservative. Conservatives, no. Matt doubles down, deflects with the equivalent of, because referring to how Matt said, oh, you're mad because we didn't invite you to speak, deflects with the equivalent of, you're just mad you can't date me. You're going from bad to worse, man. This is your own fault. It's now a controversy. Yeah, it, that is that is true. That like his response. Well, you're just mad because you couldn't speak. That really is like the male version of you're just mad because right. you know you can't date. Exactly. Because AOC said that in response to, of course, when she and her boyfriend were photographed in Florida without mm-hmm. masks on, because of course Florida is a restrictions free state, and people were saying, "Oh, look at the hypocrisy, Miss. You know, I support all vaccines and masks." She responded with, "Oh, people were just jealous because that's a picture of me and my boyfriend, and they're mad they're not my boyfriend," which is like. Again, AOC, that's to be expected from her. But yeah, no, Jenna Ellis called that out properly and very articulately, I think. A couple other tweets that I thought were absolutely hilarious here is Greg Price, a conservative author who I think he's Daily Caller or was Daily Caller for a while. He posted this hilarious collage celebrating International Women's Day. He posted a collage celebrating International Women's Day with pictures of all transgender women, including Will Thomas, uh, Richard Levine, the tranny who works for the Biden administration, the uh, the trans New Zealand uh, weightlifter, powerlifter who's claiming to be breaking all the powerlifting records as a woman. And of course, the uh, the dude from that viral video of a guy, a tranny in GameStop screaming hysterically at the cashier, it's ma'am, it's ma'am. So he posted this collage to celebrate <laughs> International Women's Day. And Jenna Ellis retweeted that saying, this is who MatchLab supports. The time to stand firm for truth is now. Trend it. Hashtag make CPAC conservative again. (laughs) So she just went off. She talked about this on an episode of her podcast. We'll be including a link to that description below. But this, of course, ignited a great big firestorm in the conservative movement against MatchLab. Again, other uh, verified conservatives on Twitter were posting about this. Dan Bongino posted on Parler saying, quote, Jenna Ellis would be great running CPAC. (laughs) And then it culminated in this one last tweet from Jenna. She simply posted this with a caption, oh, it's an article from the National Pulse that is uh, Raheem Kassam's website, and the headline is, quote, revealed Matchlap's CPAC took six-figure social action donation from Soros-linked Dark Money Network. So we go ahead and look at the article in question here, written by Raheem Kassam, the founder and the editor-in-chief of National Pulse. It says, quote, the new venture fund whose mission statement revolves around, quote, race, equity, diversity, and inclusion commitment, end quote, issued a cash grant of $183,250 to the ACU, run by Matt and his wife Mercedes Schlapp, in 2020. The fund is known for its work supporting anti-Trump, anti-conservative initiatives. The ACU refused to comment when approached by the National Pulse. The full 990 form can be read here. Uh, it goes into a little bit about the backstory of the new venture fund started in 2006, ungirds much of the political left's activities in American today. 
Its president, Lee Bodner, is a former managing director of Arabella Advisors, which even The Atlantic magazine described as, quote, a massive progressive dark money group, which has targeted President Trump. So we'll post again, we'll post a link to this article in the description below this in-depth investigation. It notes, by the way, the article does take time to talk about uh, Schlapp's tweet about trannies and notes that, you know, he was called out by Jenna Ellis, uh, the Blaze TV's Ali Stuckey and uh, others who all ratioed him for it. So you take one look at that and think, okay, is this proof that something's going on at CPAC? You know, if they, as recently as 2020, they took a donation, a six-figure donation from Soros. Perhaps something's going on there. And sure enough, the National Pulse did follow up with another article on this titled, quote, Pro-Life Pitbull slams CPAC as video emergence of, of Schlapp admitting, quote, I don't want pro-life panels. So again, following wow. the app. Yeah, this, this, I did not even know this until I, I – just the other day, I was checking National Pulse and saw the top of the article about Schlapp. So this article was written by again by Raheem Kassam on March 9th. For context, the article on the dark money donations from the Soros group was written on March 8th, two days after his you know transgender tweet. So that this is a day later on March 9th. An anti-abortion activist dubbed the pro-life pit bull of the Conservative Political Action Conference has spoken out as video evidence emerged of Schlapp admitting he shut down attempts to host a panel discussion on the subject at their latest event in Florida. Allison Centafanti, who has served at Live Action, Alliance Defending Freedom, and the Concerned Women for America, took to Twitter on Wednesday to explain her disappointment with the American Conservative Union and its conference CPAC. Quote, I have served on the Social and Cultural Planning Committee for CPAC said Centafanti, where a small group of leaders meets to compile topic and speaker ideas and submit them to CPAC. These always seem to be concerned, considered and many accepted, but not this year. Oddly this year, not a single speaker or session focused on abortion, she notes. Not one on the threat to women's sports, not one on religious liberty, not one on family, marriage, sex trafficking, pornography, etc., etc. So it sounds like basically pretty much all the major social cultural issues, right, Jacob? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, see, Soros is known to do this. He will give money to right-leaning or supposedly right-leaning organizations. Like he's a big backer of Cato, the Cato Institute. He's spoken oh, yeah. at Cato before many times because they have common ground on their open border stance. It pretty and, much is the libertarian. It is to libertarianism what the Heritage Foundation is to conservatism. It's the dominant think tank for libertarians. Yes, correct. And so in a situation like this, if Sor- the thing is if Soros has given your organization money, it's because he thinks you or someone with influence in your organization is going to be capable of pushing his worldview. So he would not give his or his the, the people who have received money from him and from someone else that he donated to. They would not be given money to the Schlaps to the ACU if they didn't see the Schlaps as a vehicle for change in the conservative movement. That is to change the conservative movement into a more socially progressive movement and a, in a more socially progressive direction that will sideline pro-lifers, that will sideline social conservatives. The article goes on to note, Schlapp took to Real America's Voice to protest that the money he receives from the left has no bearing on the content of his conference. But critics have pointed to Schlapp's apparent endorsement of, quote, compassion towards transgender people. We already talked about that. He then said in the interview, quote, we always say every year we should have a pro-life panel. And I broke that. I was like, I don't want a pro-life panel. These are his words. And they were like, why? Because I think everything is pro-life that we talk about. Everything should be life-affirming. Okay, so because it's oh just assumed – because, yes, being pro-life is one of the absolute universal positions of conservatives. Like 99.99% of the time, uh, right alongside you know, the Second Amendment, or actually probably even more so than the Second Amendment because you got guys like Dan Crenshaw who support red flag laws. Find me an issue, Jacob, that is more universally shared on the right among politicians, among the pundits, among the base – 
than abortion. It is it is a cornerstone of conservative values in America today. So his assumption is that like correctly because everybody shares that opinion his assumption is oh well because it's so obvious that we're pro-life we don't need to talk about it well that's like saying you know oh it's so obvious we support trump we don't need him to speak at cpac well the way he's using that is it's actually not in the sense that it's obvious for pro-life so we don't need to talk about it it's more like he's using the definition of pro-life the way that leftists use the definition of pro-life because if you talk to a leftist about being pro-life they'll say well if you're pro-life why don't you support welfare or if you're pro-life, why do you support the death penalty? Yes, yes. So they, they'll take that term and they'll try to expand it to other issues other than abortion. And that, to me, that seemed the way he worded it. That sounds like what Matt Schlapp is doing, that he's using the language of the left to describe the word pro, or the term pro-life. And usually this is a first indicator that a person is a wolf in sheep's clothing or that they are a secret closeted liberal. When they start using the terminology of the left, they start using the definitions of the left in their regular speech, you know that they're already starting to think that way. Now, I don't know if Schlapp is himself personally a closeted liberal, or I'm guessing that he's probably leaning more and more left because of the circles that they uh, that they're in. The D.C., you know, that. And speaking of him being them, their family being in the D.C. circles and around the liberal elite, this is what we've talked about many times on the show. You have conservatives who are genuine, genuine conservatives. They move to D.C. They get involved in conservative politics, but because. All of the social cliques around D.C. are Democrats, and all the social cliques, even in Republican circles, are socially liberal. Their politics tend to change over the years the longer they're in the D.C. area. Rather than changing pockets of D.C., they tend to become more like the people around them because they want to fit into in their social circles and the social class that they've moved into. So I was in the research for this main topic. I came across this New York Times article that – it was a profile piece on the Schlapps. So in, in this in this article, in this New York Times article, I, this great line I found about the Schlapps, it says, This past weekend, the Schlapps aired their disgust at the comedian Michelle Wolf's takedown of Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House Corres- uh, the White House press secretary at the White House Correspondents Association's dinner. You probably remember this. This, was, this yeah. really blew up. And, uh, quote, It's why America hates the out-of-touch leftist media elite, Ms. Schlapp tweeted from a limousine en route to an exclusive after-party organized by NBC, MSNBC. Not not even Fox News. Like, this is an exclusive after-party organized by NBC slash (sighs) MSNBC. Asked about the couple's own membership in the elite, Mr. Schlapp responded, quote, I mean, I'm not trying to act like I'm driving a garbage truck in Des Moines. You don't tweet that if you're in a limousine en route to an exclusive after-party organized by NBC, MSNBC. And this is what a lot of conservative elites try to do. They try to use populism. They try to use class warfare to gin up all of their – to gin up clicks because they want clicks on their website. They want people to listen to their podcasts. They want people to watch the show on Fox News. So they will purposely foment class unrest and class warfare, which is what this tweet is doing. This is a clear appeal to class warfare, which is fine if you're part of the class – that is trying to take down the establishment. But if you're part of the establishment, your goal should try to be to get more people who are part of the masses out there in middle America to come join your side in D.C. to take on the establishment so you can take over the establishment from within. You don't continue to foment class warfare when you're literally part of the elite and you're on your way to a gala hosted by NBC News. So this is the part that I find so distasteful. You have a lot of conservatives who are rich, who are wealthy, as we're going to get into their wealth here pretty soon. That act like that they're part of the masses when they're very clearly not, and it comes out in, through stuff like limiting pro-life panels at CPAC. It comes out whenever the the metal hits the whenever the the pedal hits the metal, and it, you realize that they really are part of the elite. They've assimilated into that elite. So one of the biggest problems that I've always had with the Schlaps, Mercedes in particular, is they never really got on board with Trump nationalism. 
So they're like Bush Republicans trying to weather the Trumpian storm, hoping that it blows over. So, for instance, Mercedes said in 2015 that Trump is, quote, really going to struggle if he goes and continues to push a very strident immigration policy that doesn't show in any way that we can, in fact, find a legal path for these individuals who are here, for these undocumented immigrants that are here, end quote. Now, just a little background. The Schlapps met in the George W. Bush White House when a Miss, when a Mercedes Schlapp, who is known as Mercy, grew up. She grew up in Miami as the daughter of a Cuban immigre. She was a liaison to Hispanic and especially news media outlets in that area. Uh, Mr. Schlapp rose to the role of White House political director. He grew up in Wichita where he was a top-ranked tennis player and taught Charles, he taught Charles Koch's son, Chase, how to play tennis. Um, also worth consideration is that Mercedes was the director of strategic communications for the Trump White House and then went to work in a high-level capacity in the Trump 2020 campaign. Now, the director of strategic communications, she's going to be in charge of which issues to emphasize, which issues to de-emphasize when the Trump campaign, when the Trump White House and the Trump campaign are issuing their directives, like which issues. Obviously, they can't focus on every issue all the time, so they've got to prioritize. This is from Michelle Malkin's book, Open Orders, Inc., Who's Funding America's Destruction?, in 2005, Koch Industries hired Bush administrative, uh, administration operative Matt Schlapp to head its D.C. lobbying organization. In 2009, Schlapp founded lobbying firm Cove Strategies with his wife Mercedes. In 2014, he was elected chairman of the American Conservative Union to oversee the annual CPAC. In 2017, Mercedes Schlapp was named senior White House communications advisor. While the Mrs. left the family lobbying shop, Matt Schlapp re- reaped the benefits of his intimate ties to the White House. The year his wife's his uh, the year his wife headed the West Wing, Co Strategies under Schlapp's reign raked in more than one million dollars in lobbying income. In twenty eighteen, the Schlapp's firm made nearly one point three million dollars. And in the past uh, first five months of twenty nineteen, the business had already pulled in four hundred and twenty thousand. Among its top client clients, the Seasonal Employment Alliance, a business association singularly dedicated to busting the caps on the H two B visa program for temporary low skilled non agricultural workers. If you've ever wondered why it's so difficult for your teenage kids to get summer jobs at your local uh, resort or amusement park, you can thank the H-2B program. In February 2018, the alliance held a fly-in lobbying event in D.C. for members to pressure Congress to expand their cheap labor pipeline. Out-of-towners reportedly received a sweetheart discount at the Trump Hotel. In February 2019, journalist Peter Dabroska of the conservative Big League Politics news site reported that Mercedes Schlapp blocked Angel Moms, a group of parents of children killed by illegal alien criminals, from meeting with President Trump to express their opposition to a budget bill that shortchanged border wall funding. In March 2019, despite adopting a higher American job agenda, the Trump Department of Homeland Security raised the H-2B visa limit by 30,000 visas to a record high of 96,000. Scores of those visas have gone to laborers at Trump's Mar-a-Lago Hotel in Florida. All of this swampy business came to a climax after my CPAC speech after, in 2019, sounding the alarm on open borders, in which I blasted Republican failures to control overall levels of both legal and illegal immigration. When I returned to the backstage VIP area, a man in a business suit approached me to pester me about the need to lift the H-2B visa cap. Ordinary citizens don't have access to the exclusive roped-off areas of CPAC, but deep-pocketed donors and corporate lobbyists do. The unseemly conflict of interest in Matt Schlapp conducting his cheap labor lobbying business and running CPAC while his wife works in the White House is classic D.C. access trading. Once the uh, the premier gathering for the rank-and-file base of the conservative movement, CPAC has become an elitist pay-for-play operations that reflects the Open Borders, Inc. agenda, not the grassroots. It's time to cancel this outdated and out-of-touch Beltway institution that marginalizes the youthful energy of millennial nationalists and which has long shunned and shunted immigration hawks, unafraid to call out the big business influence on the party establishment. And this is why you you know bringing in people who were from who were holdovers from the Bush era Republican Party who served in the Bush administration 
administration was so dangerous to the Trump nationalist agenda and was so important for the establishment. It was so important for them to get people like the Schlapps into the Trump White House so they could thwart the immigration agenda because the Republican Party is still backed by corporate interests. We've talked about that many times. Oh, yeah, that has not changed. This is the main impediment to actually taking over the Republican Party with Trumpian nationalism is you have so much of the donor base is still beholden to cheap immigrant labor. And so Trump's rhetoric, rhetoric, and this is why we talked about this actually many times on the show, one of the disappointing things of the 2020 campaign versus 2016 was the lack of emphasis on immigration. Uh, They just – they we can – Blame. I think we can blame Mercedes Schlapp for this because she was over the strategic communication of the campaign and the White House. So this is why it's so important that when you're bringing holdovers over from a previous Republican Party that they have genuinely changed their beliefs in politics and they haven't just changed their rhetoric. And it needs to be said, too, that, of course, CPAC, like I said, it is a big deal. You you can talk about whether it's it's been subverted, infiltrated, what have you. But CPAC is still the dominant conservative gathering in the country at any given time. It's only rivaled by the RNC. And again, that, of course, happens every four years. And that is more party politics rather than conservative politics. So and of course, as we all know, that's prone to change depending on whoever the nominee is. So CPAC and the ACU command a lot of capital, a lot of money, a lot of resources. It's important. It's it's kind of like the NRA. You know, the NRA obviously has been going very, very downhill but the non-existent leadership of Wayne LaPierre, there's multiple articles on this that this is not just some left-wing attack, that insiders at the NRA, board members have resigned in mass. You know, the average gun-toting American supportive of the Second Amendment does not support Wayne LaPierre's leadership. It's been going downhill, and the NRA is one of the oldest, certainly one of the oldest Second Amendment institutions, one of the oldest organizations in the country. And it would be so much better if we had someone in charge of the NRA, like off the top of my head, Donald Trump Jr. Donald Trump Jr. in charge of the NRA, it would actually be a natural fit because he is a total gun guy. He loves to go on safaris and stuff and post pictures going on hunts and whatnot. But of course, you have the Trump name in there. He obviously knows a thing or two about running a business because he's been running his father's business since, you know, the since he was first elected in 2016. So you get someone like that in command of all the power and the capital that the NRA has. It could do some serious damage to the left at an institutional level, at an organizational level. And CPAC, of course, absolutely is another example of something that could have a lot of – could inflict a ton of damage on the left. But when the head of CPAC is voicing his support for transgenderism, even if he's forced to walk it back and qualify it due to criticism, if he he relented under conserv- under this criticism time and time again that he was wrong. Like, okay, yeah, 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 I support women's sports, whatever, whatever. But the fact he made this statement to begin with is already getting off on the wrong foot. It's kind of like when Christy Noem, remember Governor Christy Noem of South Dakota, vetoed the the bill that would have banned trannies from competing in women's sports and is like, oh no, I'm going to sign my own executive order to do it myself. Like the damage is already done. You, you can't undo that disorganizational mess that you created. We've got to have someone who understands what is driving the right right now. And certainly the fact, again, the social, cultural issues that absolutely was a key role in winning the Virginia election and making New Jersey as close as it was. It was critical race theory and it was transgenderism. It was those two things, both under the umbrella of educational issues of what's going on in our public schools right now. And that's what it all comes down to is what these poor girls, these college students, these teenagers, the two teen girls who got raped in Loudoun County by a trainee and the schools covered it up, transferred him to another school before he did it again. And then finally he got uh, arrested and convicted. And again, you got to make everything personal. Matt Schlapp and Mercedes Schlapp have three daughters. I can guarantee you that they would not support a tranny competing on their daughter's swim teams. 
or softball teams or what have you. And certainly if Matchlap, like any good father, I'm sure, if he found out about his daughter's going through a situation like this where they just share a locker room with a guy who says, oh, I'm a, I'm a girl now. He would be banging down the principal's door demanding that action be taken, that that person be kicked off the team and his daughters not be exposed to a naked guy in their locker rooms. Any father would do that. That is the proper thing to do. But of course, I'm, I'm sure, you know, his daughters go to very fine schools, very fine, you know, probably a private school, probably an expensive school, and maybe they don't have to deal with that. But you look at the vast majority of Americans, American students, female American students at public schools that are going through this and their parents aren't going to be able to bail them out because their parents on average, again, like the parent in Loudoun County, he tries to talk about it to the school authorities, tries to report to the police. He gets escorted off campus. He gets beaten and arrested by the police for it. You know, and if you're not going to fight on the transgenderism issue, just as you're not going to fight against the opioid crisis or illegal immigration and what it's doing to rural America, what it's doing to the white working class that was the backbone of this nation from its founding up until very recently, then You've demonstrated you might not understand what it takes to make the conservative movement stronger, to really fight for those values and make it a viable political movement that is capable of overcoming everything the left is throwing at us. Donald Trump did this in 2016. Glenn Young can manage to pull it off in Virginia last year. It can be done if someone understands that power, understands that rhetoric and harnesses it. Will Matchlap ultimately you know, turn around and see the error of his ways? And maybe will we finally see a pro-life panel at CPAC next year? I mean, by that point, it probably won't be relevant because hopefully, God willing, Roe v. Wade will be overturned by then. But either way, will he come around and have a, a come to Jesus moment? I saw the light. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Maybe Jenna Ellis will be in charge of the ACU soon enough, like Dan Bongino says she should. Who knows? But either way, we are going to continue covering this and any other developments on the right, civil wars especially. We, we love, don't you just love a good conservative civil war, Jacob? I sure do. It's a lot of fun to talk about. There's nothing like a good civil war to, to clean house and take out the trash. I love the smell of a conservative civil war in the morning. All right. That, unfortunately, is all the time we have left for this episode of The Right Take, guys. Once again, this weekend, we will be taking California to deliver the hottest take you will hear on January 6th. That is the topic of my speech. We will be documenting our adventures in lovely Orange County, California. And we will have all of that for you next week for episode 56. Until then, as always, guys, be sure to follow us, all of our latest content and updates at our website, righttakepodcast.com. The full list of podcast platforms and social media sites where we are available, righttakepodcast.com slash subscribe. But of course, if you're feeling as generous as ever, righttakepodcast.com slash support. We'll talk to you next week, guys.